Good morning, church. Good morning. Two things I want to say real quick. If you have not had the opportunity to attend our Christmas program, Night of Alleluia's, you need to do so tonight at 6 o'clock. If you had the opportunity to attend, I want to invite you back uh, and bring somebody with you tonight. We have got a lot of volunteer hours and effort that has gone into tonight. It's going to be incredible. Second thing I want to tell you, John Gimmer, I don't know if he's here, cooks some of the best jambalaya on the planet. If you've never had it, you need to try it. Today, after church, I invite you to try jambalaya that's about ten times better than his, made by Zach Dasher. It benefits our college guys. Zach's cooking it up, and it's delicious. So join me for lunch. I'm in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Get a pen if you can. Get something to write with. Uh, get excited. We're going to talk about some history today. I'm going to set up the context for Matthew chapter 4 uh, really clearly. Matthew uses a prophecy in Matthew chapter 4 that I want to really take some time and, and get you guys familiar with the prophecy that he records and the setting that um, provides the context for that prophecy. If you got a pen, my hope is that it will be easier for you to stay on track. Because sometimes wading through history can be a bit of a challenge. In Matthew's gospel, we established last week that he's writing to a mostly Jewish audience. And he wants these individuals to know that Jesus Christ is not just another good man, although he was a perfect man. And he wants his audience also to know that Jesus was not just another prophet who could work miracles, although Jesus did the miraculous. Matthew wants his audience to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the deliverer of God's people. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew identifies this Messiah as Emmanuel. In chapter 2, he calls him shepherd and son of God. In Matthew chapter 3, we get the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we get the temptation of Jesus. And now in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, we get another name of Jesus, courtesy of Matthew. Hopefully you got a pen handy. Hopefully you got your Bible handy or something to write with. We're in Matthew chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 12. The Bible says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. To the people living in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The words of Matthew here in the fourth chapter of his gospel are linked to the prophet Isaiah's the prophecy. That's found in Isaiah chapter 9 specifically. So I want to read that in its form as it exists in the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light 
has dawned. God is not content to leave his people in gloom and darkness. Can I get a witness this morning? So I want to set this up for you guys because you need to see what's happening when Isaiah makes this prophecy as it's going to really inform our understanding of how to apply this to our lives right here in December 2016. Okay, I want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to put the biggest smile on your face you can. And I want you to pat him on the shoulder. I want you to say, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. We're going to go, we're going to go deep into some history, y'all. All right. If you notice your neighbor falling asleep, I want you to do just what you just did right now. I want you to reach over. I want you to grab them. I want you to give them a big smile. I want you to say, you got this. You can do this. Okay. Here we go. You guys ready? When Isaiah gives this prophecy, he is prophesying about something that is happening in the nation of Israel. Here we go. The kings in Israel are kind of as follows. There's Saul, who's a bad king. Then there's David. David has a son named Solomon, who's this really wise guy. Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. And at that point in Israel's history, the kingdom divides. There's a northern kingdom ruled by Jeroboam, and there's a southern kingdom ruled by Rehoboam. Okay? The northern kingdom is the first kingdom to be overthrown. And they're overthrown by a group of individuals called the Assyrians. Everybody say, the Assyrians. Say it with me one more time. The Assyrians. That's the first group to overthrow one of those areas of God's people, and that's the Assyrians. The Assyrians do not overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel in one fell swoop. They actually invade on three different occasions. And I want to look at each of those occasions very briefly. The first occasion is found in 2 Kings, write this down, chapter 15 and verse 19. In your notes, what you're writing down is that that is the first Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. The king at that time is a guy named Menahem. I put in parentheses king of Israel just so you could follow along on the screen. That's not in your Bible. Let me read this for you. In 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 19, the Bible says this. Then Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, invaded the land. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. And Menahem, who was king of Israel at that time, gave Tiglath-Pileser a thousand talents of silver to gain his support and strengthen his own hold on the kingdom. There's not a lot of carnage and there's not a lot of bloodshed at this point. A more powerful nation invades Israel, the northern part of God's people. The guy who's ruling Israel, Menahem's like, look, dude, here's some cash. I'm, I'm loyal to you. Don't hurt us. Tiglath-Pileser's like, no problem. And he gets out of there and Menahem rules. In 2 Kings chapter 15, after Menahem, is a guy named Pekahiah. Pekahiah is overthrown by a guy named Pekah. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29... The second Assyrian invasion occurs. So write in your notes, second invasion, that's 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 29. This is the second time these mean, nasty, powerful, war-hungry Assyrians have invaded the people of God. Here's what happens. In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, same king, different king in Israel at this point, came and took Ejon, Abel-Beth, Micaiah, Genoa, Kedesh, and Hazor. 
He took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali. And here's something significant about this second invasion. He deported the people there out of Israel. Now, remember Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says that in the land of Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, there is a darkness over that land. And in that area where darkness currently exists, someday there is coming a day where God is going to shine a light in the middle of that darkness. Isaiah calls that region of Israel like a land that's living in the valley of the shadow of death itself. And for those people who are living in that area, Isaiah says one day a morning light will cause a new dawn to occur. And those people who are living in the valley of the shadow of death will be illuminated by the goodness of God. This is exactly the, the timing of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, let me give you the third part and final component of the Assyrian conquest of Israel. You guys got this. You're awesome. Okay, this is 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 6. I just wanted to finish the story out for you. In the ninth year of Hosea, who's the last king of Israel, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and Gozan on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. So here's what happens in the nation of Israel. It's kind of like if in the United States, Canada and Mexico became world powers and they invaded us. And they make it to the White House and they tell the president first, look, we don't want to hurt anybody. All we want is you to pay us all your taxes for a whole year. So the White House says, fine, we'll pay you all our taxes. And they start sending checks to Canada and to Mexico. Immediately what happens in the U.S. is our government infrastructure totally collapses. We have no federal support, no municipal support. There's no military. There's no leadership. And chaos starts to break out. People are scared. People don't know what tomorrow holds. People don't have a sense of when God is going to restore our nation. And before we know it, they invade again. But this time they deport half of the people of our nation to somewhere else. Some of the people who would have been deported are going to be our brothers, our sisters, our moms, our dads, our cousins, distant relatives. And when they're deported, we don't have any way to communicate with them. And we don't know if we're ever going to see them again. And for the Israelites, that deportation is more profound. Because if the Israelites are deported to a region where they can't worship their God, then their spiritual life as they know it ceases to exist. The Israelites would have had to have observed specific feast days. They would have had to maintain certain dietary restrictions. They needed a place where they could offer sacrifice to Jehovah. And if a pagan nation would not allow them to practice their religion the way God had designed, then these people in a a very real sense would have been spiritually dead. And those who remain would have known these people are now away from God because they're in a foreign land and they can no longer worship God. And then in 2 Kings chapter 17, finally the entire northern part of God's people, the whole nation of Israel is deported. And what this particular king does is he re-inhabits the land with people who are not original inhabitants. They're not Israelites. So that's why the nation of Samaria in the New Testament, uh, the city of Samaria in the New Testament, carries with it such animosity to the Jews. It reminds them of this conquest and how at one point in time they were removed from the land God said he was going to give them and deported into a nation that was godless. 
Let me give you some interesting backstory here to help us date Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm giving you the story of the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom. There is a southern kingdom too. And the king during kind of this time is a guy named Ahaz. He's 20 years old when he becomes king in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. He reigns in Jerusalem 16 years. This guy was an evil man. Listen to what he was doing. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Ahaz was leading the southern kingdom astray. And so the northern kingdom, where the king is this guy named Pekah, decides, I'm going to invade the southern kingdom. And so he makes friends with this nation called Aram, and Pekah and Israel and Aram decide they're going to pair up and they're going to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. So they start to march towards Ahaz. Ahaz doesn't know what to do, so he decides, I'm going to send a bunch of money to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and see if he'll join with me and defeat Israel. So that's exactly what happens in 2 Kings 16, 7 through 9. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He says, I'm your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Listen to what the king of Assyria does. He complies... And attacks Damascus and captures it and deports the inhabitants of uh, Tekir and put reason to death, king of the Arameans. What happens in the third part of the invasion is the capital city of Israel, Samaria, is captured. What happens right here is the city of Damascus is captured. This is second invasion. Everybody just go, Amen. Okay, guys. Everybody loud, enthusiastic, encouraging. Amen on three. Ready? One, two, three. Awesome. You guys got this. Okay, so this is what's happening. Northern kingdom is going to invade southern kingdom. Southern kingdom gets Assyria to attack northern kingdom. It's, it's civil war. It's chaos. It's bloodshed. It's godlessness. It's fear. It's hopelessness and powerlessness. And in Isaiah, in the seventh chapter, Isaiah goes to Ahaz at this exact time. When the northern kingdom marches on the southern kingdom, Isaiah goes and visits Ahaz and he says, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son, which is Pekah, king of the northern kingdom, they have planned your ruin, Ahaz. They said, let's invade Judah. Let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and let's make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place it will not happen. And Ahaz probably at this point is going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because what's he doing? He's plotting a plan with Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, to overthrow Israel. And as Isaiah is giving him this prophecy, he's got to be thinking, my plan is fixing to work. This dude Isaiah usually always knows what he's talking about. And he's telling me that the northern kingdom of Israel is not going to come south and destroy me. So I'm good to go. King of Assyria is going to come over. He's going to do his work. I'm still going to be on the throne in Judah. And that's what happens. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. 
God is not going to leave the northern kingdom or any of his people in a state of gloom and doom and desolation and darkness without a plan. Can I get a witness? God always has a plan. Wherever you're at in life, you need to know right now, friend, that God has a plan for you in the middle of your darkness. And if you misunderstand the context, if you don't get how there is bloodshed and war and hopelessness and despair and powerlessness and spiritual death happening in the Israelite nation, then you don't get the chance to see how deep the light of God penetrates into the darkness of God's people. And God can penetrate that same life into whatever darkness exists in your life. So let's try to apply this today. You got through the history. God bless you guys. Okay? You made it. Let's apply these scriptures. Okay, the first thing I want you to know is that the light of God relieves all of your pain. The light of God is going to relieve all of your pain. When, I, when Matthew, in his gospel in the fourth chapter, references the land of Naphtali, the area of Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles, immediately in every single Jew, it would have felt like they got hit right in their stomach. It'd be as though somebody mentions for us Pearl Harbor. The second he mentions that, people know Tiglath-Pileser invaded Israel. The southern kingdom plotted against the northern kingdom. This evil king comes and overthrows God's people. It was civil war. It was bloodshed. It was conflict. It was hopelessness. It was despair. It was actually as though we were living in the valley of the shadow of death itself. And now this prophet is saying even in the midst of that, a light is going to shine through and a new day dawns. What Isaiah actually says before this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, is that God is going to use the Assyrians against the nation of Israel. Isaiah says, because this people has rejected the gently, listen to how he describes God here, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. And because Israel rejoices over reason, the son and the son of Ramaliah. Aram and the king in Israel. In other words, Isaiah is saying, you guys have sought for security and peace and purpose and certainty in everything except for the God of the universe. Shame on you. Because you've done that, the Lord is going to bring against you the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, a foreign river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp, and it will overflow all of its channels and run over all of its banks. In other words, Israel... You will be destroyed. But the reason God can heal the pain of Israel is because he doesn't allow Assyria to cause that pain without a plan for healing it. And God never allows hurt in your life without a plan to heal it already in place. So whatever that is in your life, just like it was in the history of the Israelites, God's plan to heal you already exists. And let me tell you the name of the plan. The name of the plan is Jesus. Not only does the light of God relieve all of our pain, the light of God shines through any and all darkness. In the scriptures, light and dark are used as metaphors for good and evil. John's gospel really does a good job at, at, at displaying that metaphor. But Matthew intends to use it here, and Isaiah intended to use it definitely when he was prophesying to God's people here. 
What I didn't give you is the context of exactly how evil the nation of Israel had gotten. In 2 Kings 17, you get some of that story. Here it is, a couple of verses. Israel had forsaken not just one and not just some, but all of the commands of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves two idols in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to not just one and not just some, but all of the starry hosts, and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens. And listen to this. They sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. All of this was going on the time Isaiah gives his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. And none of this evil thwarts God's plan to shine light in the midst of of that darkness. There is no evil on the planet or in the history of the world that God's goodness cannot overcome. Amen? And no evil or darkness in your life, past, present, or future, is too great for God's goodness not to help you through His power and by His Spirit overcome. Can I, are you all listening this morning? Not only can God's light shine through any darkness, but God's light removes our burdens. It actually removes our burdens. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, this section of Scripture actually makes up one of the most famous messianic prophecies in all of God's Word. Chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 we're not as familiar with. We're real familiar with verse 6. In between is verse 4. And here Isaiah uses the destruction of Midian to encourage the Israelites. And he says, you know, the same way the Midianites were destroyed, the Assyrians are going to be destroyed. And that heavy yoke that the Assyrians have placed on your shoulders will be broken by God. And that burden the Assyrians have placed on you will be moved. The bar across your shoulders, the rod of your oppressors will be destroyed by the light of God. And Matthew is fond of using this burden imagery. No doubt he thinks of it here when he references Isaiah chapter 9. And he gives us another iteration of that use of imagery in Matthew chapter 11. If you go to Matthew chapter 11 verses 28, 29, and 30, Jesus is recorded by Matthew as saying this. And you'll know this. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul in me. For my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. There are two applications here. First, Scripture's clear. The burden of sin is a heavy burden. And no doubt Matthew intends for his audience to understand that today, for Matthew's audience, the light of God, who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will relieve the burden of the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. And today, December 2016, that same Messiah can relieve any burden of your sinfulness. But there's a second application here that I want to give you. Lots of you guys are Christians. You're trying to live a God-centered life. You've been in church for years. 
But you still place a burden on yourself almost of perfection. And I want to tell you, if you're in Jesus Christ and you are trying to live the God-first life and you still feel a heavy burden across your shoulders, friend, it is not the burden of Jesus Christ. Because His burden is easy and His yoke is light. And Jesus came to shine light into that darkness in the lives of some of you across this auditorium this morning. You're trying to measure up of your own good deeds or your own strength or your own willpower and it is crushing you. And Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly of heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is all right here in Matthew. And once you know the context, you can see it clearly. Let's go one other place. The light of God reveals truth. The light of God reveals truth. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we get this real powerful scripture that's linked to this whole section, which calls Jesus a child. Matthew, uh, Isaiah would say, unto us a child will be born, to us a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And here's where you'd be really familiar with this passage. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's the truth about the God that we serve. Let me break this down. Counselors should impart wisdom. At least I hope that's what they're doing. I'm a trained counselor, so I would like to think that there's a connection there. And if God is a wonderful counselor, and he certainly is, then he imparts wisdom to his people. But it's different than the wisdom of the world. You see, in, in, in God, your strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's wisdom. In God, your greatest victories are going to occur in your life at the moments you're most surrendered to him. That's wisdom. And in God, even in death, you can be made alive. If that's the wisdom of God, then the power of God follows that same way of thinking. This is a God who doesn't have to conquer the world by coming as some mighty, oppressive ruler who's got a military that none can fathom and even fewer could stand against. This is a God who can conquer the world by sending an innocent, helpless child that's a mighty powerful god a god who overcomes evil not through more evil but a god who overcomes evil by good a god who vanquishes every enemy through an act of surrender and this is what the nature of god is our everlasting father is about when isaiah gives this prophecy the people of Israel would have felt so oppressed by foreign rulers who had forced themselves onto God's people, who had obligated them to obey or death would ensue. And often I think that's the feeling we get from our own fathers. Like, man, we've got to mind our P's and Q's, and if we don't, we're going to get our hides tanned. And I think for earthly dads, there's some benefit to that. But our everlasting father never forces himself on anyone, instead sacrifices himself for all. 
And when we understand that that is the God and our Father whom we serve, then our identity changes. And we're no longer members of that land, shrouded in darkness, living under the shadow of death itself. But our identity is as members of God's kingdom and as men and women who have been adopted into God's family. Brother, that is good preaching. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I know. The last thing that Isaiah calls this deliverer is the Prince of Peace. I want to conclude this sermon with a story, and then we're going to wrap. Um, we, we, we try to plan our sermons in advance. Sometimes God just throws a hitch in the giddy-up, but that's the vision. And we knew we were going to preach this specific sermon on this specific day about five weeks ago. And probably ten staff people knew that. But outside of those ten staff people, no one else could have known and, and nobody knew the title. Most people didn't know the title of the, of the sermon. So I get an email from a lady who says she wants to talk to me. And by the way, if God is doing something in your life, I want to know about it. Okay, so if you feel free to let me know via email, call me, whatever. This lady emails me. She says, call me. I want to, I want to talk to you. And so I call her. It's on Tuesday. And she said, God woke me up Sunday night at 2 a.m. And he just started ministering to my heart. And this lady's been going through a time of, of trial and tribulation. And she really feels like she is in a dark season. And she calls me and she said, Trent, as God was ministering to my heart, a, a poem came to my mind. And the title of the poem is The Light of God. And here this Sunday, five days later, I know I'm going to preach a sermon called The Light of God. And the Holy Spirit just washed all over me. And she said, can I read it to you? And I said, please. And so she read me this poem that I want to read to you guys. Because I feel like it's a good way of understanding how this child, when he comes in the world, can cause peace in the lives of his children in any circumstance. So give me a a moment or two and let me share this poem with you. Written by a, a lady who's a member of our church. She says, your child is with people you wish he didn't know, lying about being somewhere he shouldn't go, but the light still shines through. Your child is staying secluded in his room, no talking or laughing. Our home feels like a tomb, but the light still shines through. The pain of watching your child change before your eyes, the hopelessness you feel inside, the light still shines through. Being afraid of the person he becomes when he has no compassion, prayers and more prayers are the only action. The light still shines through. Long nights of crying and sitting at the door, wondering if he might not come home anymore. The light still shines through. Oh, the fear you feel when the police are at your door, you cannot bear the thought of even breathing anymore. The light still shines through. The dreaded call that he is hurt and may die as you speed to the hospital, you pray and you cry. The light still shines through. The horrific time you have in knowing he's going to jail, how devastated you are trying to raise money for bail. The light still shines through. 
The hurtful tears your sweet grandchildren shed, so painful they can hardly sleep in their bed. The light still shines through. You're standing next to his wife at her side while your sweet grandson takes his first breath of life. But the light still shines through. The anxious waiting of his precious children and wife, waiting for him to get out of jail and hopefully start their new life. The light still shines through. It's so sad when all your joy is gone, you believe there's no way to continue on. Yet the light still shines through. You have to fight for the light or darkness will overtake you. God will give you strength and peace. He will never forsake you. The light still shines through. Jesus is the light of the world. His promises are true. If you put your hope and trust in Jesus, His light will shine in you. Friends, you can have peace in life because through Jesus Christ the Son, you can make peace with God. And that's the best Christmas present you could ever receive. I'm going to dismiss in prayer. And then before you get up and go, if you have a need in your life, God's given this message to this group of people because there are those who are battling the forces of darkness today. And if that's you, man, this is a church where we just want to surround you and encourage you and pray with you and not have to fight some of those battles alone. And if you've never been baptized in Christ and lived the light led by, life led by the light of the world, then we want to take care of that today as well. Bow with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus who really is the light of the world. The light that shines through our darkest moments, even if those moments are as dark as the valley of the shadow of death itself. Thank you, God, for sending your precious son so that we, through him, could have life and light. Any here that need to have a burden lifted by that light shining through their darkness, God, I pray you'd empower them to respond. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.